Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, as ever, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Today, we are going to talk with, I am going to talk with, I'm not an editor or a royal person, so it's just me, uh, Colleen Kalashu. 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 Okay. So I first encountered Colleen giving a talk at NSGC some years ago on the subject of variant curation following genetic testing for cardiac disease. And I was immediately struck with her poise, her confidence, intelligence, and sense of purpose. Um, I had that feeling, you know, that uh, I would follow this chick into battle. Sure. And I believe I reached out to you after that, without knowing you, to say what a great talk it was. And we became friendly. But I don't really know you. I just follow you with interest. And um, here are some basic facts. Colleen Kelshu is the Senior Director of Research at Gene Matters, a genetic counselor-founded and led company focused on increasing access to genetic care via telehealth and technology. Very timely. She leads Gene Matters' cardiovascular team. Her research at Gene Matters focuses on scaling genetic counseling via technology and increased efficiencies. She received the Jane Engelberg Memorial Foundation Fellowship for 2019 for a randomized controlled trial of meditation to improve genetic counselor professional well-being, and recently was awarded the Best Abstract Award at the 2021 NSGC Annual Conference for part of this work. Colleen is a PhD candidate at Leiden University, and that's in the Netherlands, huh? Yeah. Do you get to go? (laughs) Pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah, okay, did you get? Wait, so tell me, Colleen, a little bit more about your sort of GC story. Like, um, what brought you to um, where you are now? Sure. Um, the start of that is what brought me to the field, um, which the short version is um, I had a family experience with illness and loss when I was a teenager and uh, had like really bad healthcare provider experiences and one really profound, impactful one from a palliative care nurse or social worker um, when my father died in the ER awaiting palliative care admission. And that really was like, hey, I want to do something that can interact with people at that kind of point in when they're dealing with something awful and have that kind of impact. And then you combine that with all the usual stuff. I like science. I like working with people. But I knew I wanted to do research and be a clinician. So that led me to the Hopkins NIH program because it's pretty research heavy. And then I followed their then phenomenal, he's a still phenomenal, but was then the medical director of the program, um, Bob Nussbaum, out to UCSF for a job because San Francisco looked awesome. Um and uh, fell immediately into cardiology because Bob was starting a new uh, adult division of genetics into the greatest interest that wasn't already covered, of course, cancer being very well covered there, uh, was cardiology. Um, And I feel actually incredibly fortunate because I love my clinical specialty and I happen to literally fall into it when it was just starting to explode. So I was there for a few years and then I went down to Stanford. That's a good story. I think if you're ambitious and 
uh, really want to make changes in the field to get in on a area that is just beginning, you get to operate. My impression is you get to operate with more independence in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would really agree with that. I mean, I, that was not a strategic move by me as a completely new grad. It, I was pure luck. Um, but I agree that, you know, if you're someone who wants to help define what some corner of the field is going to look like going forward, stepping into a new area is a really great way to be able to do that. So right now I would say like nephrology genetics. I feel like just suddenly we're having this presence in renal and um, that's the kind of place where, you know, a, a GC could move into a completely new role in renal genetics and really have a lot of opportunity. Ophthalmology too, I think. Yes. I agree. We've been there for a while, but it's like taking off now in a way it hadn't before. And of course, as we always know, like often that follows the genetic testing. Is the testing available? Then the GCs come and then we can make an influence. So anyway, so I I left UCSF and went down to Stanford and I was there for about a decade um, with a group led by you and Ashley, who I know you've had on before, who's a phenomenal cardiologist and kind of um, thinker about genetics in medical care. And I built out the genetic counseling um, crew in cardiology there, which was super fun. And then my family, we decided to make a personal move up to Central Oregon to live in the mountains in Bend for quality of life. And that prompted me to make a professional move, which I had kind of been sitting in academic medicine and like looking over there some of the really amazing, cool stuff that was happening in industry to push the field forward faster and been on advisory boards and consulted to scratch that itch, but was kind of like, hey, this is an opportunity for me to more properly go scratch that itch and landed at Gene Matters, which has been tons of fun. Oh, great. So what dark tale brought you to studying burnout in particular? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I it's, I don't have an origin story of this where like I had some horrific experience in the past of burnout. Those I, certainly some of my collaborators have had personal brushes, which they're open about. Um, what brought me to it actually was meditation. So I started meditating with any decent training or consistency in grad school, and I actually had a genetic counselor mentor. Actually, a couple of them who were big into meditation, Jim Peters, who just won the Natalie Weisberger um, and spoke about mindfulness and meditation in that acceptance address, um, was one of them. And uh, Trish McGeary was the other. And she was actually a meditation teacher in addition to being a genetic counselor. And so I got some training with Trish while I was in grad school and, you know, did some talking about how meditation can impact the care we provide about, you know, patient centeredness and being grounded and perceptive and empathic and attuned. And then also how it can help us process the stress. And then I just did that on my own and it wasn't part of my professional work. And then as often happens, a student came along and her interest led to this entire chapter of my life. So Julia Silver was a master's student at Stanford, and she was very interested in meditation and mindfulness. And I got hooked up with her um, as her thesis advisor, and we ended up doing a descriptive study looking at the relationship between mindfulness and compassion fatigue, burnout, um, work engagement, a few other sort of metrics of 
what I consider a genetic counselor professional well-being. That then sparked the inspiration for the randomized control trial uh, that we got the JEMF for, Marianne Campion and I. And the paper that we just published and the talk I've given the last two years at NSGC is sort of a secondary data analysis related to burnout in the baseline data from that trial. Mm -hmm. So what I'm curious about first is whether or not you feel, I mean, so clearly burnout is a big issue across all medical specialties, right? Like that's, uh, uh, and you hear a lot about it with regard to physicians. Do you think that genetic counselors are particularly susceptible to burnout and have a hypothesis as to why that is? If so. I do have a hypothesis that we are and some hypotheses about why. So, you know, grounding first in the data, um, we do have higher rates of burnout published in our literature than in physicians and nurses. There are no studies, of course, that in the same enrollment have compared us to other providers, right? So there's all the caveats of you know, ascertainment by a study design, different measurement, can you compare? But, you know, across multiple studies on GCs, we have a slightly higher percentage of folks who report burnout on burnout scales than what is seen in the much larger literature on other clinicians. Not a lot bigger. It's all just kind of around 50%. We're a bit over that. Um, I do suspect we may be more susceptible. So there's some literature in the larger burnout in clinicians, um, there's some evidence in that larger literature that women are more susceptible to burnout in clinical fields. Of course, we've got a lot more women um, in our profession. Um, and then, you know, there's other things, and I know we're going to get into this more, but things like autonomy, being valued, having appropriate administrative support, our profession has a very long way to go. You know, we've made a lot of progress, especially in the last decade, but it's very spotty and unevenly distributed um, progress in some of these variables. Another big one is um, sort of job demands versus capacity, right? Um, I'm not sure we're necessarily worse than other clinical provi uh, providers on that. I mean, System-wide, even pre-COVID, I think that's a problem for a lot of clinicians. But, but to, to those are some of my thoughts. Said It's interesting to me because I do think there's a particular frustration. I actually experienced this more in the sort of uh, parenting part of my life than in the cheesy part of my life where you have, I mean, responsibility and authority have to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So to have a lot of responsibility and no authority is a very frustrating position to be in. And I think genetic counselors do have a role where, because of the significance and emotional content of what they're mm -hmm. doing, they have a lot of sense of responsibility to their patients. Maybe that's the autonomy piece, like not connecting those two. That's interesting. Yeah, well, and the, the variables that have been measured related to what you're seeing in other fields haven't been measured in our field yet. So I can put in so many plugs during this discussion for further research. Great topic for student projects, very feasible um, in the student project timeline. Um, 
So there's a variety of ways you can kind of measure this idea of either you're just given too much work for how much time and capacity you have to get work done. Um, or um, autonomy is, of course, a related one. Um, so we need to look at that in our field. And the other thing that I think of that you bring up is I don't know about data to back this up. I would love to hear it if you do. But I think that we recruit people to this profession who have very large sense of responsibility compared to the population average, maybe even compared to other clinicians. So does that, if my I am correct in thinking that, does that kind of disposition also act as a vulnerability when it comes to something like burnout? So that was actually my follow-up question was, or the sort of associated question was going to be, do you think it's the job or the personality type drawn to the job? And you've just described a bit of both. Yeah. First. So, sort of like yeah. So if job. we first, sorry, if we first stand on top of the existing literature on other clinicians, which I think is really important to do throughout this discussion because it's large and robust and has a lot of insights. That tells us that it is both in clinicians in general. Uh, so there's this beautiful conceptual framework that we've used in our work that came out of a report from the National Academy of Medicine, where this one of these reports where they say, hey, this is a big issue in medicine. Let's get together a bunch of the right experts, have them comb through the literature, synthesize it. They're coming from different disciplines put out a report. I, I personally think this report should be required reading for anyone who is a manager of clinicians, including people who manage genetic counselors. But their model, what they referred to as a systems framework, so it, it positions the individual clinician within the larger healthcare system and acknowledges that the healthcare system has sort of multiple levels of it that go from like what's happening right in your clinic to, you know, the broken health insurance system in this country and abortion laws, right? And everything in between. And then the impact of those work system factors are sort of filtered through um, individual factors that could be susceptibility. So when we look at our data from our study, for example, we saw that um, depression and stress and resilience and self-care behaviors, which are individual level, for example, were associated with burnout independently in multivariate analyses, but work system factors were as well. So it's really a combination of both. And some of the individual stuff, I'm not sure that sure the dispositional stuff we're talking about has been studied well. Things like stress and depression correlating highly with burnout that gets very messy at figuring out chicken and egg, you know? Um, and the, the literature is not clear on the temporal order of those things, the causal order, like, is that co-occurring? You know, we, we definitely see people who have burnout who are not depressed. It's messy. Anyway, so to come back to what you're asking is, is it the work system or the healthcare system or is it the individual? And the answer is it's absolutely both and probably differs in an individual situation. I, um, I'm sorry, I'm going off piste here. Um, this is not a question that I had 
my list of questions, but I'm listening to you. I'm just thinking, you know, there's a lot of um, when you get a bunch of people who've been teaching for a lot of years together in a room, there's a lot of sort of kissing and moaning about certain things about as as there always is about old people complaining about young people, about how students aren't, you know, they're fragile than when then they need more and they demand more and sort of being uh, protected. But you know how uh, COVID, in addition to causing a lot of things, was also super clarifying about a lot of things, you know, like yeah. clarifying about what's going on in our healthcare system and so on, inequities. I feel for me like this whole process has been also a little bit clarifying about understanding a generation that whether they can put their finger on it or not, realize their threat, they're facing a whole level of threats that my generation at least didn't face mm -hmm. for their lifetimes. And there's an anxiety and a sort of a need to I feel more sympathetic. I was never actually a big like, oh, the youngs, because I do have kids that age. And I think like, oh, they have a lot of pressure, right? They have a lot of pressure that I didn't have. Have this 24/7 pressure of being attached to emails and phones and everything, but more sympathy. Um, like look at the world they're facing. You know, no wonder there's a desire to sort of get a handle on what things you can control, and maybe that comes down to only being able to control yourself, aka meditation and so on, practice like that. Maybe um, I, my, I guess this is my way of saying I think this problem is going to get worse and not better. Um, you might. I don't know. I mean, our, our admissions criteria changing, hopefully for the better, might help as well. Full disclosure, I do not work directly in education. I've dabbled on an admissions committee back in the day at some point, so I know I am out of my depth. But so, so first of all, I, I so appreciate what you're saying and totally agree. And how can this not combined with you know, reckoning with racism and the climate crisis, how can all of those not be completely generational defining pressures and crises? And it's huge. I mean, I can't fathom that, right? I mean, on the other hand, anxiety in genetic counseling students is not new, and we have the literature to show it. So unpublished Actually, this is so, so I mean, maybe I shouldn't even be saying these numbers, but preliminary analysis of our student cohort in our trial, because we have basically parallel studies of meditation for students and meditation for genetic counselors. They're basically going through the whole, the same thing. We measure slightly different things because of student or GC. 71% of um, the first two thirds or so of our student cohort, when we did a quick look, had, had clinical levels of anxiety which is really high, but also not inconsistent with prior reports, some of them dating back to a generation that didn't face all of the things and certainly was pre-COVID. And that 71% was pre-COVID too. So yes, there's an absolute generational thing happening. Um, however, I have a hypothesis that we have admissions criteria that admit people who are highly anxious. And I will self-disclose that like I figured out soon after grad school that I had clinical anxiety and I've been very grateful to have treatment for it, for it, variety of ways. And I've also talked to many students and fellow counselors who have discovered that, you know. Um, 
or came in with it, right? So to are are we selecting these folks and any movement related to JEDI that is pushing us towards more holistic admissions criteria, might it help us to have a lower representation of folks with a high level of anxiety? I don't know. Now I'm truly hand-waving. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's true that our system rewards a certain level of neuroticism. And by yeah. that, I mean like singleness of purpose and maybe sort of double. I mean, it, it, it's been interesting to see because I've been at least peripherally involved with education since the very beginning of my career and obviously more and more. And in the early days, um, really, we were looking for people who could do the job, right? That people that knew of genetic counseling, there weren't that many people that knew about genetic counseling 20, 25 years ago. And they, so we were looking for people that had fulfilled the requirements and looked like they could do the job and hopefully had some sense of what she's so as it's gotten more competitive we have definitely you know come to a point where there's many candidates who could do the job yes have the science background and so now you're picking between them based on other things which has taken a while for me to get used to so it used to be like okay and you you do have a choice at that point do you reward like just we're all into GPA or like, you know, the person that's done a gazillion hours of shadowing and just shown mm-hmm. them obsessed with this. Or do you look at someone that seems healthy and stable and the, the some of the things, but also how do you design criteria that promote uh, somebody who's going to be good at the job because they're kind of a centered, balanced person and not get into penalizing people for mental health issues, which yep. is not fair or something no. to do. Absolutely not. So I don't know. It's 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 tricky. It's very tricky. And, we, and obviously we have to acknowledge that like when we are in this reality, we've been in for quite a while now that there are far more applicants who could do the job than we can admit, right? It's that obsessiveness and neuroses or whatever you call that, that single-mindedness that, or you could say persistence commitment. Um, but it's also boatloads of privilege, right? And it, um, we have to be addressing both of those things. And, you know, I don't want to be ableist, including against myself, and say that there aren't strengths to us having people in our field who have a high level of anxiety or vulnerability to burnout. Like, there are absolutely two sides to a lot of those things. And perspectives that we bring, you know, is it because of being an empath? Is it because of um, having high standards or wanting to do right by people, you know, and those are some of those things that uh, we certainly don't have hard data on, but that factor into decisions about not just who we admit into our training programs, but how we take care of each other throughout our careers. You know, whether you're a peer or a manager or a mentor or a, a friend, you know, how do we take care of ourselves and our fellow genetic counselors career long 
not just in who enters the profession. So I want to follow up and ask you more about that, but I feel like before we do, I should backtrack just a little because we skipped a discussion of the cost of burnout. So I'd like yeah. to have a little discussion about what it costs uh, both our counselors and our patients um, and then go into maybe ways in which we could address it. Yeah. So I have to say that this literature has been uh, not unexpected, but shocking and humbling um, for me to read into. Um, I mean, I think we all carry around the notion that burnout is probably bad for patients and yeah, people probably leave the field because of it and that sucks. And but to actually look at the evidence that is accrued. So again, starting with what's out there already on other clinicians, I mean, we're talking hard medical outcomes, not just softer things, which I always hate that sort of soft, hard distinction. So I'm going to try and use different words, but um, patient mortality, patient safety is worse when physicians are more burned out in the physician literature. Uh, and then, you know, this, there's the estimates of how much money the burnout, burnout, clinician burnout costs the U.S. healthcare system is four billion dollars a year, wow. and that's that's mostly turnover, absenteeism, um, medical errors, etc. So, and there's all that kind of stuff out there. And then we, so the, the um, abstract that uh, we just presented at NSGC, the conference, um, and the paper was published in the spring or summer, we took advantage of the variables that are sort of consequences of burnout that have been described in the larger literature, the, the variables like that, that we happen to have in our baseline data for our trial and meditation. So they kind of um, group conceptually into three categories. One is, you know, counseling effectiveness or things that might affect patient care. Uh, the other is, um, actually, it's just two categories, forgive me. And then the other is sort of retention or workforce sustainability. So counseling effectiveness, huge literature out there that makes it clear that there are certain things that, you know, make for better patient outcomes in terms of what a provider does. And this, this is in the physician literature, the psychotherapy literature. So things like Classic Carl Rogers stuff, empathy, unconditional positive regard, uh, the strength of the counseling relationship. We had measurement of that um, by genetic counselor report. Uh, would have been better methodologically if we had patient report, but that's a much larger, more expensive study than what we did. What we found was that GCs who reported higher levels of burnout uh, reported that when they were interacting with their patients, these were sort of measurements on patient interactions, GC report, they had lower unconditional positive regard, they had lower empathy, they didn't have strong of a counseling relationship. And then they also reported higher levels of this variable called reactive distress, which is when you see bad things happening to someone else or they tell you about their difficulties and you get yourself very distressed. So it loses Rogers as if quality. It's like I actually, Colleen or Laura, am experiencing my own internal distress, which of course isn't great for staying present with the patient and being focused on what the patient is experiencing and needing. It pulls us out of the patient and into ourselves. So those are all things that are not great for patient care and patient outcomes in the counseling relationship. Right. And 
And then in terms of retention, you know, the PSS has reported on this for a few years, which is that burnout is the most common reason GC site for leaving the field. And we asked a more proximal outcome that's a little bit easier to see change in, which is, you know, to what extent are you considering reducing your clinical load? We were studying clinical GCs only, patient-facing GCs. And we saw, you know, a pretty strong relationship between burnout and that variable. And they were even able to say that it's because of poor professional well-being that was correlated with burnout as well. So, you know, this is the first look at consequences of burnout in our field. Um, and it completely replicates what was seen in other clinicians and is of great concern. Yeah. Especially, especially at a time when we're trying to increase access and maintain quality and justify for Medicare paying for our services and figure out how to create a profession that is high quality, sufficient access and throughput, fiscally sustainable. Like there's a there's a clinical and a business case to be made for addressing GC burnout. I mean, I've always considered this a mission driven profession. Uh, um, and by that, I guess I mean, uh, in simplest terms, that uh, people could do easier jobs for more money. Uh, they believe in this one. Yeah. Really want to do this one. It's not the. It's 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 not the sort of like. Uh, it's not to say there there are things people do that are very hard and very remunerative, and there are things people do that are sort of less difficult. But when you just look at on the scale of it. Uh, the amount that people have to put in, hours, mm-hmm. keeping up, the challenge to keep up with genetics is very intense. Uh, it has to be a labor of love, is what I'm saying. And mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me at all when you say that um, people's distress with their work leads to the lack of retention, because there's no other reason why people are doing this, really. Mm-hmm. They have to feel uh, that they care about it in them and that they're helping um, or I think they're going to look elsewhere. So we want to keep, you know, we have joining our ranks, lots of, let's face it, mostly young women, which is complicated because, uh, you know, we, I, I, I personally complain at times about the number of people I train who then go and get married and their names change because I have enough trouble keeping track of anybody without that added bonus. Although I changed my name when I got married. So no judgment. I'm just saying personally, it's, but you just see so many people are on the cusp of all sorts of things. They're starting a new career. They may be starting new families and so on. So there's a lot going on. And of course there's going to be people in and out, in and out and so on. But uh, retention is a very big issue for the Mm -hmm. field. We really do need those senior people uh, add so much. Um, yeah. Uh, plug for the senior people. Adding <laughs> wisdom. Um, okay. So how do we address it? Um, mm-hmm. What can, let's start with this. I sort of want to divide this into what can managers do uh, or schools do and what can individuals do for themselves or for their friends? So let's start talk about institutionally. What can we do? And I'm going to split apart managers and schools. So, and I appreciate approaching it at this level of institutions and individuals because 
you know, we can talk about what do we need to do in the field, right? But where does the action actually happen? It's when someone logs into their job or walks into their office, what's happening, right? So I would say that our data and the prior studies on burnout in GCs will reflect what I think a lot of us have seen anecdotally in recent years with genetic counselors leaving to better workplaces. And I don't mean leaving the field. There's a lot of of migration that has happened within the field because of a given GC workplace being just unsustainable, untenable. Um, So what I'm saying there is individual GC managers, employers, they need to look at not just our data, the GC burnout data, but the data on burnout and clinicians in general, and probably some complementary data on retention, uh, and realize that in order to keep GCs and recruit GCs, they need to make sure they feel very valued, because a lot of GCs don't, and that's associated with burnout. They need to give them the appropriate amount of clinical or administrative support so that they then are working high in their scope. So hire those GCAs, stop having your genetic counselors schedule and do prior auths, right? They need to give them opportunity for professional engagement. We saw that associated with burnout. So things like meaningful growth and development opportunities, participation in national organizations or committees, whatever it is that is a the right calling to that genetic counselor, in so much as that is you know, financially feasible for that employer. Um, They need to give them autonomy that's commensurate with their skills uh, and that they perceive as being appropriate, right? If we look back historically at our field, you know, and I'm not as seasoned as you are, but I've been around long enough in a critical time. She means she's younger. (laughs) (laughs) to see some of those things really make a lot of change, right? I mean, if we look, right, I I mean, I started school in 2004. So in the last 17 years that I've been kicking around this lovely profession of ours, it's been some big changes on those variables I just mentioned. But there are some GC employers where those things are still where they were in 2004 or worse, right? And no one that I know of has done this study, but I'd love to see it. Um, My perception is that the employers who, be they clinical or otherwise, who are doing better around the variables I just outlined, which are only a subset, they're attracting and retaining counselors. And the the employers that are doing worse on them, they have horrible turnover problems. And sometimes they can't even keep GCs employed. Does that ring true with your perception and experience? It was my experience right to my training um, in different locations. And the the program I trained at sent people to very different, very different type locations. And in some places, it seemed like the GCs were... mm, very uh, much 
contained within a hierarchy and they're, they're had operated very little on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were the, obviously the, the least appealing to me. Um, mm-hmm. Or I, I didn't. They were fine as a training site. They're actually excellent in many ways as a training site. But um, where I wouldn't have felt like I wanted to spend my whole career. But I also recognize that there are a subset of people that want to take on less. Maybe they have other things going on in their lives, which is fine, right? Like they more comfortable in a setting where they know just what they have to accomplish, show up. It's quite defined. Um, but by and large, and then there were other places where, where the genetic counselors operated really with complete independence, mm-hmm. sort of signing off person was this mythical presence. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's the variation. And I, I feel that some range within there is appropriate, mm-hmm. um, because people have different desires in that regard. But even the people who want the more bounded career, right? They want to come in, they want to see their patients or write their genetic test reports and log off at the end of the day. And they don't necessarily want to be the person who is defining how the field is moving forward or writing publications or giving talks or on a trajectory to become NSGC president, right? Like I strongly believe, and I think the data supports that those people still need the maximum autonomy which fits within their role and what they need. They need appropriate amounts of support so they're working um, as high in the scope for their setting as they as is needed and appropriate. Um, and they need to feel valued. And they might even need to feel valued more actively than those folks who want a different kind of career because The truth is the person who comes in day in, day out and sees patients or writes up genetic test reports is going to have a lot less opportunity for accolades than the person who is, you know, giving a plenary talk at NSGC or whatnot, right? So that there's a risk of neglecting that with those folks. Who are so Um, valuable. Pardon? Who are so valuable incredibly valuable i mean they're they're the most like they're just they're doing the thing they're providing the care and you know putting my day hat job on scaling genetic counseling increasing access the nice thing is these things all dovetail together right like the stuff that makes genetic counselors quote-unquote happy or professionally well Mm. is mostly the same stuff that makes us able to see more patients, bring in more revenue, have higher throughput, have greater access, which is nice that those two things align. And I definitely, I mean, I look at the the people coming through the program, many of them young, and there's absolutely no question that these are hungry to learn people. There's no way they need to graduate and then just go do the same thing for the rest of their career. There has to be the option for forward for forward motion um for sure uh i could see that like i i I see that as a existential issue for the for the field that people have have the ability to move through their career to from 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 doing what they're capable of doing at entry level to doing something really quite different uh 10 Mm -hmm. years down and that wasn't always true um that wasn't always true, at least 
20 years ago, that definitely wasn't always true. I, I think, think that's still a challenge in some work settings, right? Like where you you need the, the GSEs seeing the patients and writing the lab reports and how, you know, titrating that. And um, I, I think that's going to be an ongoing retention and fulfillment challenge that we need to attend to carefully. So talk to me a little bit before we run out of time about what individuals can do. Mm, mm-hmm. So uh, wait, burnout. So for themselves. Um, so the, if I want to start with where the individual intersects with the work system. So choosing your employers wisely, you know. Um, we are fortunate that we have for a while now been in a in applicants job market in our field. Um, how long that will continue depends on many, many things. Seems like even with the pandemic, that's still mostly the case. Um, so thinking about some of these factors when you're choosing a job and then you know, recognizing that this is an okay reason to leave a job and go to another employer. And I have had just heartbreaking Twitter DMs, emails from genetic counselors since putting this work out there saying, reading your paper made me realize that this isn't just something that's wrong with me, that I'm not alone in this, and that literally so many of the variables you mapped out I saw in my old workplace and are, I left because I thought I couldn't cut it. And now I realize that it was because it wasn't taking good care of me. So that's okay, you know? And it's a controversial thing to say. I've had people, you know, cr- criticize me saying, this is an okay reason to leave a job, but it is in my mind. Um, so stepping more deeply into the individual realm. So burnout is really common. So we need to be monitoring ourselves for it. Um, ideally your mentor boss would help you with that as well. Uh, Do you even consider taking one of these, you know, screening questionnaires every so often, right? Know that if you are someone who struggles with depression um, or anxiety, that you may have a higher likelihood of being burnout, but that we don't really understand how those things interact with each other. Whether it's really a vulnerability factor or a co-occurring negative outcome, we don't know yet. Know that there's some evidence that self-care does help. which includes things like um, mindfulness, meditation, work-life balance. Well, of course, you could have a whole podcast on that construct. (laughs) Um, Professional engagement, um, professional relationships. Um, Yeah, so I think think those are some of the heavy hitters. Um, What about schools? Welcome. Schools. I love this question. I got this question at NSGC as well. Uh, what if all of our students graduated knowing burnout is really common and it's unfortunately normal and it's not their fault and that it's okay to get help for it and it's okay to make changes related to it, you know? I mean, goodness, I know you all have so much you have to fit in to your curriculum, it's impossible. And, you know, anyone can get up on any stage or in front of any mic and say, this needs to be added to the genetic counseling curriculum. And 
program director sit there and say, and then what exactly are you expecting me to take out? <laughs> <laughs> no, we never take anything out. We of just course not. Adding things in. Keep adding. Maybe a little I bit. I would argue that this is so foundational and impactful that it's important. I would reflect back again that I was very grateful that um, I mentioned earlier having mentors on meditation and self-care when I was in counseling school. Um, we also had a a class, a brief class in our first semester that was on like self-awareness and self-care. And I really valued that, you know, what it, even just its presence in the curriculum, what it told me about how to be as a professional. Is it fair to say that burnout is common, but do we have any sense of it over time? Like, can we tell people does it get better? Does it go away? Because people may be c c contemplating, you know, sort of That's a great question or whatever. I, I wonder, it's like, do people who've been in the field for a while tell you I got burnt out and then I did this and then I felt renewed? People absolutely tell me that, especially now that I study this. I am. There's absolutely no data in our field on sort of um, episodic or temporal nature of burnout. Um, I haven't looked at that specifically in the larger clinician burnout literature, but my gut sense is that it's an episodic phenomenon. Um, the things that people most often tell me, anecdote, is not what is it data is not the plural of anecdote but nonetheless the things that genetic counselors most often tell me helped them resolve it is changing jobs mm. okay. it's the story that i've heard the most since starting to talk about this work a few years ago um somebody go do that study please right uh, and what you need, though, like to do the you need a longitudinal pro prospective study design, which like, you know, getting funding for that is no small thing. Um, I'm a big fan of seeing if the insights are already there in a related profession that we can potentially leverage. So. Yeah. Yeah, but, because, I mean, if somebody's depressed, one of the things you can say to them is hang in there. It gets better. We know this is terrible, and we know for most people it gets better. Not for everybody, but yeah. for most people it gets better um, absent anything, and there's all sorts of things that you can do. So that's not right. the same. So, yeah, I think it would be really valuable to know that same question about burnout if somebody is feeling very um, tired of their field. Mm -hmm. What I think about is, the stories people have shared with me, as well as the, the intersecting or, or um, kind of dovetailing data that gets at, I kept trying to not be burnt out in this job, and I couldn't get them to change the work system factors. And then I left, and I went somewhere that had better work system factors, and I love my career, and I'm thriving again. So, Colleen, to, to wrap up, I feel like you have a, do you have a particularly acute sense of irony? Because you are, you're working, you have a big job, mm -hmm. you're raising little kids, mm -hmm. and you're studying burnout. 
Like that's what you added to your life. I know, right? I oh, what I mean, some of our colleagues know, and you didn't have on that list that I'm happy to disclose is that my partner became disabled in the past year. And um, I actually was preparing for my talk at NSGC, and I was going back over um, some of the data and some of the metrics, and I realized I was burnt out in the moment, not, but it's, so the thing about burnout is it's domain specific. And I was burnt out on caregiving and adjusting to what was happening in my home life. And that was a great insight for me. I mean, I knew it had been hard. I knew it was very stressful, but I I hadn't realized I was burnt out. It was when I was reviewing the definition of burnout, these three components of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and sort of not feeling um, a lack of sense of efficacy in your work right? You don't have to have all three to have burnout, but that's sort of the the components. So yeah, but what have I done about that? I took the next day I could off and I went and I soaked in hot springs in the back country in Oregon and it was lovely. And then I started figuring out what I needed to change, you know? Um, maybe we should all take that burnout measure, a burnout measure once a quarter, once a year, just to be like, oh, whoa, I hear from people all the time that they didn't realize it was happening until it had been happening for quite a while. I'm I'm a little afraid that in 2021, um, after the tumult of Mm -hmm. what went on in 2020 and continues now, societal reckonings, um political reckonings um have we mentioned there's a pandemic <laughs> i don't know. Know, think we could maybe deal with what the numbers are right like but, yeah uh, yeah every, yeah everyone, i know everyone's dealing with all of those domains right now yeah um, but that doesn't that makes it more important not less important i just i just think we maybe need to get a little distance on at least the COVID pandemic. The other things I'm afraid may be here to stay, so we'll see, but. uh, Yeah, pandemic burnout is very real, you know? And if if you took like a clinician burnout instrument and you kind of rejigged it to be focused on the pandemic, I mean, how many of us have had periods of intense emotional exhaustion feeling completely emotionally spent about the pandemic in efficacy. Oh, I finally got my shots and we're all done. And then, Oh wait, no, actually maybe not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And now my kids are going back to school and this is a month ago, right? All of us being like the Delta, the Delta and the combination of breakthrough things and et cetera, right at the time when Roger put the kids back into school, talk about personal inefficacy and then, you know, depersonalization, how are we thinking about people? Does that 700,000 who have died really mean what it used to mean to us? And then not to mention, you know, the, the divide, you know, do we think of a person who's decided not to get vaccinated as a person anymore for those of us who are vaccinated and angry and probably vice versa, you know? Yeah, I've seen, a, I've seen an awful lot of 
I'm so angry, you know, people who aren't vaccinated, they shouldn't get the same medical care, variations yeah. of that on Twitter and so on. And like the human being in me completely sympathizes with that level of anger. And, you know, anyone that's spent any time looking at medical ethics knows the dangerous and yeah. terrible idea that is, like yeah. awful and, and how very quickly, you know, yeah. it just, you know, let people say it and they need to vent a little bit. But um well, and it's hard when you hear things like um, my so-and-so's so-and-so couldn't get a bed in a hospital and die for their un- non-COVID-related issue, and those beds were given to someone who's unvaccinated. But yeah, I mean, if you have any exposure to bioethics, and goodness knows I only have a fraction of what you have because you do that for a living. I mean, my father died from lung cancer, and he smoked five packs a day for 50 years. 40 years. Should he not have been given care? You know, should they? Exactly. I mean, and our, our, our hospitals are overwhelmed by people who are very sick and very often they have metabolic syndrome, they have diabetes, they have this and that. There's an element of personal responsibility. um, And we take care of those people. That's what we do. We take care of whoever walks in the door and we don't ask them how they've behaved. I think one of the ways you humanize people who are currently unvaccinated for people who are angry about it or when any one of us is feeling angry about it, one is that it's not a monolithic group. There are tons of access issues in there even still. And then for the folks who have no barriers to getting it but are actively choosing not to, the vast majority of them are victims of a horrific and widespread misinformation campaign, right? So, you know, that is an endemic in our country that is of massive proportions and impact. Um, So kind of thinking of them as having been affected by that problem, I think can sometimes help with humanizing. Well, I, I'm looking for a place to stop. Although, honestly, Colleen, I feel like we could talk all day. Um, I, so, yeah, when I talk, but you. you don't actually have all day because you're a very busy woman um, and all the other reasons that we just explained. And um, and I can't really think of a better note on which to close than one of empathy and uh, caring and trying to. Uh, understand other people because uh, that's sort of what this is all about, but also turning that that goodwill and caring on yourself. And each other. You know, one of the most beautiful themes of the conference, the NSGC annual conference that we all attended recently, there was so much about that. There was so much about taking our core skill set of empathy, unconditional, positive regard, advocacy and make sure that we're um, using that skill set on each other within our profession. And a lot of the issues with burnout would be well served by that, as with so many of our um, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion issues that were heavily focused at the conference. So I, I love ending on that. And we shall. Everybody, Colleen, thank you. Everybody else, be good to yourselves. Be good to your the people around you. Take care, everyone, and be well. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.